Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14? It's going to be our uh, ambitious attempt to cover the whole chapter today. We've been talking about what it means to be a people of grace, becoming a people of grace. We've talked about the theology of grace and what that means about our relationship with God. And now we're talking about how we express that grace to other people. Last week we talked about how grace frees us from the law, but it also guides us in choices that we make and various things that we do. But what about when those choices differ from one another? How then do we treat one another? Today we're going to talk about the freedom to accept others and their differences from Romans chapter 14. Before we go into that chapter, let's have a word of prayer together. Lord, we pray today that your word would become clear to us, that the intended result would be a change in our lives that would honor you, that would help us to love others more, and that would bring glory to you. We pray, Father, for understanding. I pray help in explaining. We yield ourselves to you. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever seen an advertised product and then you go to the store and you find out that it's really not what it was advertised. They really just used it to lure you in to buy a different car or a different sofa that really is more expensive. You know, they call that tactic bait and switch. Unscrupulous retailers use it. Something that will draw you in but then they say, oh, we're out of it. Or, well, you don't want that anyway. They sell you something more expensive. You know, I think sometimes we as Christians are guilty of bait and switch. We call people in to the church. We call them into the body of Christ. We tell them that you come in unconditionally. God accepts you as you are. But then when they get here, we say, now we want you to be as we want you to be. God says, come as you are. We say, but if you're going to stay, you need to change. Unfortunately, many Christians who say that they believe in salvation by grace often practice otherwise when it comes to accepting other people. And their attitude is, if people don't live up to my standards and my scruples and my convictions, then they've fallen short. And I've got to do something to change them or else I'm going to reject them. If they fail, or if they differ from me, then they're out. Someone has said that Christians are the only army that shoots its wounded. I got a call not long ago from a lady. and She had gone through a divorce in another church, and she said that they treated her terrible. They told her that she was doing Satan's will, and I don't know all the circumstances of it, but they pretty much ostracized her and kicked her out of the church after this divorce. And she says, is that how Christians are supposed to treat one another? And it was a sincere question that she was asking. She wasn't being sarcastic at all. Is that what the Bible says, that I'm from the devil? There are hindrances to accepting other people in the body of Christ. 
I'm not talking about difference. I'm not talking about those in the body of Christ who might be in a blatant sin or some kind of rebellious state. I'm talking about when we differ from one another. One of the hindrances to accepting other people is intolerance with imperfection. We look at somebody, and if they don't believe exactly like we do, then we don't accept them. If they behave a little differently, or if they're not as committed as we are, then we're unhappy about it. We let them know. You know, when I was in sales, they would tell us that your goal is to sell one out of ten customers, and that's success. When a new business starts up, only four out of ten are going to make it. That's success. But a Christian is not allowed to fail when they come into the family of God. Or we ostracize them and reject them. Another hindrance to accepting others is impatience with their lack of discipline. They may not be disciplined enough for us in their Bible reading or in their prayer habits or in their church attendance or in their giving. Another hindrance to acceptance of others is just the social snobbery that we sometimes experience. Where do you live? What kind of car do you drive? What kind of job do you work? How much education do you have? I think the bottom line of all this is that we're threatened by the differences that we find in other people around us. We don't know how to deal with those things that are outside of our own comfort level. It'd be a lot easier if everybody was like us, but when they dress differently and work at a different kind of job or treat their children differently, drive a different kind of car, send their kids to school, homeschool, private school, public school, we don't know how to deal with the differences that people choose. What makes us feel comfortable is if we could control our environment and control other people to get them to march in lockstep with the way we march. We bully them into a conditional acceptance. If you act this way, and if you talk this way, then I'll accept you and I'll be your friend. Needless to say, then, that those who don't accept others are and have this kind of uh, grace-killing attitude are anti-evangelistic. You see, because the heart of evangelism is reaching out to people who don't know the Lord and who are involved in all kinds of things in the world. And when we bring them to the church, that's a messy situation, isn't it? You know, there's a favorite proverb, I think it's in chapter 12, that I, I just love, and it says, uh, where, where there's a lot of oxen, there's a, the stall is unclean. In other words, if you're going to have a lot of animals, it's going to be a mess. But it says, with those oxen comes the strength to get more work done. And we as a church are committed to bold outreach. Bold outreach means that we go out into the world and we bring people to Christ, bring them into the church, and build them up. But, you know, when we bring them in, they're not all tidy and clean like we would like them to be. They bring in their problems and their baggage from the world, and it makes us feel uncomfortable. And so I found that those who have a grace-killing attitude are not evangelistic because they want everybody to be like them. Nice, neat categories. Neat in their beliefs, neat in their theology, neat in their practice and their disciplines and their habits. It's a much more comfortable world for them to live in. But you know, we worship a God who is a very creative God. He has made us all different. The same God who made the butterfly made the buzzard. The same God who made the fern made the redwood. The same God that made me made you. And we're all different. If I were to serve you today a choice of vanilla ice cream, chocolate ice cream, or strawberry ice cream, how many of you would take the vanilla ice cream? Let me see your hands. 
There, after my own blood. May your tribe increase. How many of you would choose the chocolate ice cream? Okay, we forgive you. And how many would choose the strawberry ice cream? Oh, you're in the wrong church. Sorry. <laughs> See, God has made us all different. Wouldn't it be a, a very boring world if we all liked vanilla ice cream? Or if we were all like Charlie Bing? Wouldn't that be a boring world? And a boring church, by the way. God has made us different in his creativity. And he says, come as you are. And his desire is not to have the body of Christ all the same, looking homogenized as milk. But his body is to be many colors and many textures and many differences. How then do we live together with one another when we go different ways in the body of Christ? Not, I'm ta not talking about sin. I'm talking about choices and the things that we do. The situation they faced in the book of Romans were different choices. Choices about what to eat and what to drink pretty much shares the same background as the passage we saw last week. Probably the situation was meat offered to idols. And when Paul wrote to the Romans, he was writing to a mixed group to begin with. You imagine that the early church had big problems in, in areas of choice because they were mixed Jews who had come to know Christ and then the Gentile pagan idol worshipers who had come to know Christ. Now they're all mixed together in one body in Jesus Christ. And you can imagine there's all kinds of differences. And all kinds of convictions and choices to be made. Well, you know, the issue here in Romans 14 is pretty much the same as in 1 Corinthians. It had to do with meat offered to idols. And there were some in the Roman church who thought it was fine to eat that meat. And there were others who thought, no, I could never do that. But we find there are other differences that Paul mentions in Romans 14, like drinking of wine. That was a difference in conviction. And then different days that were observed for worship. That was another difference that we see. We call these kinds of choices gray areas or questionable issues. We're not talking about black and white sins when we know something is wrong. We're talking about choices that we make about when to worship, how to worship, what to eat, what to drink, things like that. Today it would extend to things like what to watch on TV, what movies, what magazines you're going to read, um, what holidays you're going to celebrate, how you're going to celebrate Easter, Halloween, Christmas, etc., and things like that. So we're going to work through the passage, and I, as we do, I'm going to name for you, point out for you, five principles that will help us to accept others who differ from us. All right? The first one, we'll go, we'll read one through three, Romans 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. In verse 1, Paul is saying, don't make your acceptance be conditional. Receive everybody, he says, even those who are weak in the faith. Those who aren't as strong as you, those who aren't as mature as you, those who aren't as knowledgeable in the word of God as you, but receive them anyway. But look, receive them unconditionally, not just so that you could argue with them about doubtful things. You know, Don't come up and put your arm around them and say, hey, I love you, brother. I'm glad you're here in church. Now tell me, are you a... Um, Classic dispensationalists or progressive dispensationalists or hyper-dispensationalists. Love you, brother. Glad you're here at church. But tell me, are you a pre-tribulationalist or a mid-tribulationalist or a post-tribulationalist? Don't greet people just to get into discussions with them about trivial uh, things. Well, not trivial things. Some of these things are important. But things 
that aren't as important as them becoming a child of God. Let's keep the major things major and not major and minors. You know, when I visit a new church, what I find is that um, this is what happens to me. Usually someone who will seek me out. This happened a couple weeks ago when I was in California. Someone will always seek me out who's got an issue. You know, they befriend me very quickly and then they come up and then they want to chew my ear about an issue that they're evidently arguing with others in the church about. And they want to try to see if I'm on their side or not. So they're accepting and they're, they're uh, loving and, and they're welcoming. But pretty soon that issue comes up. Almost everywhere I go, that happens. They want to see if the speaker, the visiting speaker, is going to side with them. I find when people call me on the phone and ask about our church, it, I'm always amused about what they ask about. It rarely, it almost never has to do with, uh, you know, who do you believe Jesus is? And how do you believe a person is saved? And do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Those are rarely the questions I get. It's more, more often things like, well, how often do you celebrate communion? Uh, what kind of music do you play? Uh, what kind of instruments do you allow? Really crucial, weighty matters like this. I had uh, one fellow who asked about our church, and he said, well, do you have an altar? I said, well, what do you mean? Well, do you have, you have an altar where people come up after church and pray? And I said, no, we don't have one. He said, well, you want me to build you one? I said, I don't know what I'd do with it. It's just not part of our tradition here. I don't have anything against altars. It's just not part of our tradition. I don't even know what one's supposed to look like. It's amazing the things people are concerned about that have nothing to do, really, with their walk with the Lord and knowing Him. Paul says, accept people, but not just so you can argue with them. There's going to be differences in belief, he says. Some people are going to be able to eat anything, like meat offered to idols, say, oh, it's just meat. Paul says later on in this chapter, there's, there, meat can't make you closer to God or not. Every, meat is neutral. But there were some who said, no, I could never eat meat that was used in idol worship. And so they were only eating vegetables. But notice what he says in verse 2, that the one who eats only vegetables, he says, he calls them weak. I always knew there was something wrong with vegetarians, didn't you? Now, they were vegetarians for different reasons. They were vegetarians for religious reasons, evidently. But these weaker brothers, not only were not eating meat, verse 5 tells us that they probably weren't drinking wine. Or, or I'm sorry, verse 5 tells us they were worshiping on different days. Some, well, might not be the same person, but there are different opinions in the group. And then in verse 21, we see that wine was at issue also. There were some who were probably feeling free to drink and others who were not feeling free to drink. But notice the one in verse 2 that he calls the weaker brother is the one who is the abstainer, which is always interesting to me because we tend to think that somebody who doesn't do this and doesn't do that is real spiritual. They've really got it all together. And Paul's saying, no, the one who doesn't do this is the weaker brother. Weaker in the sense that he doesn't have the fullest understanding that me can't commend you to God or not, and that it's neutral. And so they lack biblical knowledge, thus weaker. And so he tells us how to relate to one another in verse 3. Look, if you can eat meat, don't despise the one who doesn't eat. Don't judge him. And let not him who does not eat judge him who does eat. Don't be judging one another, despising one another because of the differences in your convictions. Why? Because the end of verse 3, here's the point, here's the principle. God has accepted him. We should accept weaker Christians as God has. Accept weaker Christians as God has. 
We want to dispute about all the little itty-bitty nitpicky things, but the bottom line is that God has accepted that person if that person has accepted him. If that person has placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope of eternal salvation and trusted in him as their savior, that person is born into the family of God. God accepts that person. Why can God accept that person? Because God has paid an awfully high price for that person. God has paid an awfully high price for each of us when he gave his only son on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And Jesus, his son, didn't die on the cross so that we could be blown away over the choice of instruments in a church or how a person dresses in a church or how a person chooses to celebrate certain holidays in a church. God doesn't care about those things as long as they know Jesus Christ, his son, and have accepted him, then he has accepted them. He has made us all his children. We are in his family. And any family is going to have differences. You're going to have children in your family that differ in their taste in music, in their taste in food. You kick them out of the family because they don't like certain foods you serve or listen to the kind of music. I know it's tempting, but you've accepted your children because you've you paid too much of a price to get them to where they are. Well, think of what God has done for us. We need to have the same kind of attitude and accept the weaker Christians or the abstainers, or the ones who exercise more liberty and freedom because God has accepted that person. Verse 4, though, I find another principle. He says, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be able, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. The principle is simply this, let God do the judging. My friends, there's one judge in this universe, and I don't want to be him. Let God do the judging. He says, who are you to judge another servant? That person is not your servant. That person is God's servant. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, we're all servants of Christ. Because he was under criticism and judgment there at Corinth. And there were those who were giving him a hard time. And he says, we're all servants of Christ. He says, so I don't really care how you judge me. He says, I don't even judge myself. But he says, I'm going to wait and be judged on that day. Paul knew that there was a day coming when the Lord would judge him, but he was serving God, and he didn't really care whether what others' judgment of his ministry was. He didn't even try to come to his own conclusions about his ministry. He was going to wait and see what God had to say on that great day of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. Let God do the judging. Judging assumes that we know everything that needs to be known. There's only one person in all of the universe that knows everything that needs to be known, and that's God. We don't know the background of a person's life. We don't know the motives of a person's life. We don't see their past. We don't have the big picture that God has. So how can we judge a person, especially their motives? I love the story that Chuck Swindoll tells in his book, Grace Awakening, about he was speaking at a conference for a week or weekend, and there, at every meeting, at every meeting, there showed up an older couple, and he says, five or ten minutes into his message, this older man would just fall asleep. And he says, you know, no big deal. I've, he's seen that happen before. You know, every preacher's used to that. And um, I handle it differently. I say, hey, just go to sleep. Take a nap and wake up after five minutes. And you'll feel better and you'll listen better, you know. I fell falling asleep during my share of sermons. I did last summer when I visited other churches, you know. Some of you even accused me of falling asleep during my sermons. So, no big deal. 
just take five and you'll feel better. You'll listen better. So he says he was really getting irritated. This guy was coming to not just one or two messages falling asleep, but every single message, five or ten minutes in, he would fall asleep. And he started to conclude, well, this fellow, yeah, his wife dragged him here, drug him here for the weekend. And sure enough, when the wife came up to him afterwards and said, hey, well, I'd like to talk with you for me, he says, yeah, here it comes. How do I get my wife? How do I get my husband spiritually motivated and interested in all this? And that's not what she said. She said, you know, my husband has terminal cancer. He's taking powerful medications. And you're his favorite preacher. And his last, one of his last wish was, wish was that he would be able to come and hear you in person. But how quick we are to judge. He says he felt so low at that point. How can we judge somebody's motive? We don't know the whole story. We don't have the big picture. Leave the judging to God. The third principle comes from verses 5 through 9. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. For he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks. Give God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. If I had to summarize the principle from these passages, I would say it's simply this. Give people room to grow. Give people room to grow. Paul is simply saying, hey, Somebody eats meat and they thank God for it. And somebody doesn't eat meat and they thank God for that. They're both serving the Lord. They're both doing out of convictions that they think God wants them to do. So let them go. They're doing it to honor God. We don't live to ourselves. We don't die to ourselves. We're living for the Lord. So let's give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, a little bit of freedom. And give them some room to grow. When he talks here in verse um Five about esteeming one day above another. I think there are probably those in the congregation at Rome who are favoring one day of worship over another. I imagine that many of the Jews who came in were probably saying, hey, you know, we always have honored the Sabbath. Let's just keep worshiping on the Sabbath, not because of the law, but because we still have a special place in our hearts for the Sabbath. And I don't begrudge anybody who wants to worship God on Saturday. You want to have church on Monday. Doesn't bother me at all. The Bible doesn't dictate what day we're to worship God. We simply worship God on Sunday because it's a tradition handed down to us from the day, pages of the New Testament. Uh, Jesus Christ rose on the first day of the week on a Sunday, and so Christians tend to worship it on Sunday. There's nothing encoded or written in the Bible that commands us to worship on Sunday. Worship on Saturday if you want. Don't tell me you have to do it in order to be saved. That's different. But if you prefer to worship on Saturday and honor God in that way, that's fine with me. And Paul is saying the same thing here. Some people prefer one day over another. They're doing it out of service to God and out of love for God. Let them do it. Give people room to grow. Give people room to make decisions. If God wants them to change, let God change their hearts. We as Christians have so many little fetishes like that about when to worship or how to worship or where to worship, whether to pass an offering plate or not, whether to have communion once a week or once a month or once a quarter or not. What kind of songs to sing? Hymns or choruses. I knew a lady 
she used to go to this church and she, she died. She was a dear, sweet, wonderful person. And I joke her, I kid her about this. So I'm not talking behind her back. You hear me anyway. But she would never, she would never stay for a potluck supper and eat dinner with us because she didn't want to eat in God's house. I always thought that that was unnecessary. He tried to encourage her to stay, but he didn't want to, she just felt it was not honoring to God to eat in his house. So she wouldn't stay. Fine with me. God wants to change her. Let God change her. I'm not going to try to change her. I didn't. Had a friend who, uh, uh, another friend in another church, he smoked a pipe. And he knew that he, it wasn't the best habit for a Christian, and he, his family didn't care for it, and he just did it in private. He didn't do it at church, of course. And uh, he had tried to quit several times. But one day he says he was just driving down the road, and he, was, he lit up his pipe, and he was smoking it, and he looked at it, and he says, I don't need this silly thing. And he threw it out the window, and he never smoked again. We didn't give him a hard time. Nobody gave him a hard time. Nobody preached hell on him because he was smoking a pipe. God just worked in his heart, in his own time, in his own way, and said, you don't need that silly thing. That's what God does with us when we give one another permission to grow and to be ourselves. God comes along and knocks off the rough edges. I don't need to tell you about your rough edges. Chances are, 99% of the time, you know what they are. And I'm not your Holy Spirit and your conscience, and neither are you mine. Let God do the judging. Let God do the work. Let God do the shaping and the growing in these areas that are not blatant areas of rebellion or sin. And let him knock off the rough edges. I remember one time we had a fellow come into the church. He was an alcoholic most of his life. He became a Christian. And he came into the church, and he was rejoicing in his salvation. And he was sharing one day with us about... He was sharing one day with us about how a radio station had, had asked him to share his testimony over the airwaves. And he came to church that Sunday and, and he said, I'm just so blank happy. <laughs> he used the cuss word. He didn't even say darn. He used the biblical word, you know, that I can't say. I'll give him that. <laughs> the man's been an alcoholic all his life and he becomes a Christian. We'll give him room to grow and the Lord will change his language too. In verses 10 through 12, another principle. It says, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. The principle here is that each one of us as Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is not to determine your salvation. Please understand that. Very important concept in the scriptures, in the New Testament. The judgment seat of Christ is not to determine whether you go to heaven or hell. The judgment seat of Christ is what every one of us as Christians face, which will determine our reward or lack of reward. The judgment seat of Christ is where you and I as Christians go to be with the Lord or he comes to be with us, and, and then he asks us for an accounting for our lives. Now, what did you do with the gifts I gave you? What did you do with the resources I gave you? What did you do? with the opportunities I gave you. We have to give an accounting for our faithfulness as stewards of that which we've been entrusted with. So when Paul talks about the judgment seat here, he's talking about our performance as Christians. Yes, we are judged on our performance, not in relation to our salvation, but in relationship to our reward. We must all give an account for the deeds that we have done in our bodies, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says. The principle here I want to draw out is that we should mind our own lives. Why? 
because you're going to have to give an account for you and not me. Mind your own life because I'm not going to have to give an account for you, but for me. When I stand before God, I'm not going to have to explain to God why you like chocolate ice cream. You're going to have to explain to God. I'm not going to have to explain to God why you choose to do the things you do or the music or things that you listen to, the things that you watch or how you celebrate, how you worship. That's not my concern. God is going to ask me about how and why I have chosen to do those things. I am going to have to give an accounting. So therefore, in this life, I need to mind my own life and not your life. Because each of us individually is going to stand before God to give an account for the choices that we've made. Jesus talked and warned about getting in other people's lives. He says, don't worry about the speck in your brother's eye. You've got a beam in your own eye. It's so easy to worry about what other people are doing with their lives, how they raise their children or where they send them to school, what kind of things they do in their private life. It's so easy to get upset about those things. Jesus says, you better worry about the beam that's in your own eye. You've got your own issues to worry about. Don't be a hypocrite. We all have blind spots. Let's worry about ourselves first. Don't be like a stewardess who went on an airplane and started examining everybody's tickets. And she stood up in the, uh, at the end and said, everybody on this plane is on the wrong plane. You're all on the wrong plane. She was on the wrong plane. Beam in our own eye. I heard about a group of Connecticut citizens who wanted to get an ordinance passed and a, and a speed trap set up because people were speeding through their neighborhood. And they caught 53 people speeding through the neighborhood, just like they thought they would. The only problem was three of the first five were people who wanted the ordinance passed. Maybe that's what Romans 12.9 means when it says, let love be without hypocrisy. Love people and accept them, not conditionally, but without hypocrisy, admitting our own faults, admitting that we're not perfect either. Verses 13 through 23, a longer section, we're going to draw our last principle. So let's go through that together. In 13, he says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. And remember that a stumbling block is something that draws another person into sin would cause somebody to do something against their conscience so that they feel condemned and guilty. He says, I know and, and am convinced by the Lord Jesus, there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now get this, this is an important concept. Nothing is unclean of itself. Meat is not unclean by itself. What makes it unclean is the religious stuff that we put on top of it if we associate it with idol worship. We can apply this to so many things. A knife is not unclean, right? We use it to cook with. Or we could use it as a murder weapon. A gun is not unclean of itself. We could use it for target practice or self-defense or to fight a war. Or we could use it to kill somebody. Stone me later, but heroin is not unclean. It has medicinal uses, they're finding, for cancer patients. What is unclean is the illegitimate use of a knife or a gun or heroin or meat or alcohol or any of these items. 
Nothing is unclean of itself. Where did Jesus say that evil comes from? Right? He says evil isn't in things and objects. Evil is in the heart. Evil is what we do with the things and objects. Now, nobody's going to go out and buy some heroin, right? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? It's the use of those things in a sinful way. God has blessed us with many things in this world. We can use them rightly or we can use them wrongly, but the evil is not in the object. Paul is saying, and that's that's Paul saying, that's Jesus saying that. He says in verse 14, I am convinced there's nothing unclean of itself. I remember walking by a Sunday school class once I heard the Sunday school teacher say, and the little boy, I, I happen to know the family and, and they like to shoot. They like guns. They, like target, they did a lot of target practice and stuff. And he, he liked to always talk about guns. Boys get fascinated with that kind of thing. And I was walking by and she said, now Christians don't talk about guns. Well, that leaves me after. I like to hunt. But he says in verse 15, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. And love is the umbrella concern that Paul has in the rest of the passage here. What is it that we must do to show our love for one another? Do not destroy with food the one for whom Christ died. In other words, don't insist on eating meat if it will destroy the conscience of a person for whom Christ died. Even though meat may by itself be clean. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. You may have the good freedom to eat meat, but if you cause your brother to stumble, then it's going to be called evil and unloving. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Eating and drinking doesn't make us closer to God. Objects don't make us closer to God. Our heart makes us closer to God. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Our purpose, he says in verse 19, is not to blast, but to build. Not to tear down, but to edify one another, to strengthen one another. What is it that we should be doing to strengthen one another, to make peace in our relationships with one another? Why do we look for the differences in these small things instead of in the underlying major truth that we are all in the family of God and letting that strengthen us and cause peace between us? Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of a T-bone steak. Do not destroy the work of God for a glass of wine. Do not destroy the work of God for a questionable movie. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. He says everything is pure, but if a man sees you eating meat and you think it's all right and he decides to eat meat and he thinks it's wrong, it says it's evil. It's wrong for him. It's sin for him because he eats it with a wrong, with a guilty conscience. Verse 21, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. So what's Paul saying? If eating meat causes your brother to do it in a sinful way himself, don't eat meat. If drinking wine causes your brother to stumble, don't drink wine. Or anything else, he says. Be careful how it affects the conscience of those around you. Do you have faith? In other words, can you do it with full confidence? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Can you eat a T-bone steak and enjoy it? I can. We don't have that issue today. Paul says, go ahead and enjoy it. But look at verse 23. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. 
what he's saying in verse 23 is if we have doubt, or if we call someone else to do it in doubt, then that's sin for that person. If you can't do it with full confidence or full faith that it's right and that it honors God, then it is wrong. And you shouldn't do it, and they shouldn't do it, and you shouldn't do it because it may cause them to do it. It's not from full confidence. It's not from faith in what God wants us to do. Then it's sin. Use discretion, he's saying, in the decisions that we make. You may feel that you have the right to do something, but use discretion in how that exercising that right will influence and affect other people. Pretty much what we talked about last week, if you remember. That we have rights as Christians. We're not under the law. We're under grace. God gives us a great amount of freedom. He gives us commands in the New Testament, but there are many things he doesn't address. And in those areas, we have the freedom to make choices. But when we make our choices, be careful of how it affects other people. You may be right, but you may be dead right. You're driving down the street, and you see a stop sign. You've got the right of way, and you see a stop sign, but the other car is ignoring the stop sign. Oh, bad illustration for some this week. The other car is ignoring the, the stop sign, and bam, there's an accident. Well, you were right, but you may be dead right. We can't go plowing through life insisting on our rights at the expense of others, can we? We must be sensitive and use our discretion in dealing with those who make different choices than ourselves. When I became a Christian, my neighbor also became a Christian. He had been an alcoholic for about 35 years, almost all of his life. And he joined a different church, grew up in a different tradition, started to grow in a different tradition as I did. In his church, they taught that wine in the New Testament was not alcoholic. So when Jesus drank wine, he was not drinking alcoholic wine. He was drinking grape juice. I disagree. I think Jesus was drinking alcoholic wine. It was watered down according to their tradition uh, from anywhere from three to ten times. But it was alcoholic. But he insisted it wasn't. And you know what? I didn't argue with him. Because if this man, who had been an alcoholic for 35 years, wanted to think that Jesus only drank grape juice, that was fine with me for now. Let the Lord change his convictions later, but I'm not going to talk him into loosening his scruples, because to him it might bring condemnation. It might bring sin back into his life. We need to give people the freedom to make choices. That's part of maturity. That's part of growing up. When we first teach our kids to have nap time, we insist that they lay down and they go to sleep. We put the bars up on their little cage, the crib. Now you go to sleep, and they do. And then they get older. And they still need a nap, but maybe not so much. And so we let them down. We let them read a little bit. Or maybe it's no longer a nap at all. Maybe they just need to be quiet for an hour, watch TV, or do a puzzle. Because people change, and people grow, and we give them more freedom as they grow. Grace teaches that we accept others with their weaknesses, with their messiness, with their differences, and with their problems. It would be nice that when someone comes to know Jesus Christ, everything changed overnight. But you know that that's not true with you, and it wasn't true with me. The truth is, is that babies aren't born potty trained. And when people come to know Jesus as their Savior, they don't become instant super Christians. They bring a lot of things with them into the Christian life. We need to give them patience and freedom and accept them for who they are 
because God has accepted them and let God do the work in their lives. If we have that kind of acceptance, then we, you see, what we've done is we've created an environment where people feel safe to fail and safe to be themselves. Instead of having to put up a, a pretense or a phoniness and a superficial spirituality to try to fake us out and please us. We need to let people know that we accept them because God has accepted them. And we love them because Jesus died for them and Jesus loves them. And if you're different from me, that's okay. And if you fail, that's okay. We'll help you get back up. If you don't agree with me, that's okay. We'll let the Lord settle the differences. But if people are going to grow, we must accept them the way they are. We need to be a safe place for them. And that's what we want to be at Burleson Bible Church, a grace-driven ministry, a ministry where people feel safe to come and to be themselves. Not have to be phony or pretend or try to impress anybody with what they're doing or speaking Christianese. Listen to this song that someone wrote who evidently felt that external pressure put on him. It's called, I Want to Be a Clone. It's a Christian song. Because I'd gone through so much other stuff that walking down the aisle was tough. Now I know it's not enough. I want to be a clone. I asked the Lord into my heart. They said, this is the way to start. Now you've got to play your part. I want to be a clone. And the chorus goes like this. Be a clone and kiss conviction. Good night. Cloneliness is next to godliness, right? I'm grateful that they showed the way because I could never know the way to serve him on my own. They told me that I'd fall away unless I followed what they say. Who needs the Bible anyway, they said. I want to be a clone. Their language, it was new to me, but Christianese got through to me. Now I can speak it fluently. I want to be a clone. So now I see the whole design. My church is an assembly line. My parts are there. I'm feeling fine. I want to be a clone. I've learned enough to stay afloat, but not so much to rock the boat. I'm glad they've shoved it down my throat. I want to be a clone. Isn't that so true? Maybe you've come from a church or a tradition where you had to act the part to be accepted. That's not the way God wants us to be. He wants us to accept people because he has accepted them. Let God be the judge of the differences. Where the Susquehanna River in Maryland converge with the top of the Chesapeake Bay, there's a little town called Have de Grace. That's French for Harbor of Grace. I tried to find out this week why it was named that. Even though I'm from Maryland, I don't know much about the town and, and called the library. Didn't figure, find out very much up there, except that um, uh, General Lafayette, the French general, when he was here, named it after a town in France. So that didn't help me at all. Until I got to thinking, well, maybe, though, this French general was so far from his people and his culture and his food and his, his family that he just, sort of surrounded by hostile enemies and a foreign country, he was just longing for his homeland where he felt safe. And he just thought it might help to name this little town after a place where all of his family lived and accepted him. Wouldn't that, isn't that a great concept, though, to be a harbor of grace? That's a good name for a church, too, and a harbor of grace, where people can come and people can set down their anchors and feel comfortable, not worry about being buffeted by winds, criticized or judged for who they are, but have the freedom to blossom and to grow into the different directions and the different ways that God wants us to live. He's created us all differently, given us different gifts and abilities, set us off in different directions. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could be 
a church where people could experience that freedom. Not just talk about grace, but practice it in our relationship to one another. Learn to accept one another as God has accepted us. If you're here today, I don't know what your background is, but I know what mine is, and I know that you're probably dealing with issues from, that make you feel unacceptable to others and maybe unacceptable to God as well. And I want you to know, if nothing else today, that God has accepted you because he has accepted Jesus Christ in your place. Jesus died on the cross. He died for you as you are. And he doesn't demand that you clean up your life first before you come to him, but he says, come as you are. We want you to know that message today, that you can come to Jesus Christ as your Savior, just as you are. And we'll let him save you, and we'll let him change you in his time and his way. You don't want to conform to what our expectations are, but come to him and receive the gift of eternal life. And I think that when you do that, you'll find a new joy and happiness in your life, and a new motivation to live in a different way. And we won't have to worry about trying to change you from the outside, because God's going to give you a new heart and new spirit to change you from the inside. That's his promise. That's what he says. He says you'll have living water and you'll never thirst again. He says you'll have bread from heaven and you'll never hunger again. He says you'll have the joy of salvation. He says you'll be born again into his family. You'll be like a baby with a whole new life and potential in front of you. You're tired of that old life. You're tired of trying to live up to other people's expectations, live up to God's expectations. You never can. Just come to him and receive all of that free gift today. And our commitment, I hope we agree as a church, at Burleson Bible Church, that we will accept people and be a safe place for them when they come to know Jesus as Savior. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.